One of the hardest jobs for a founder and CEO is to hire a great engineering team. And if you're based in the Bay, competing with the salaries of Google and Facebook does not make it any easier, which is why I'm really excited to introduce our next sponsor, Turing. Turing makes it really easy to build a software engineering team. Go to Turing.com and they will find you hand-selective top-tier engineers that can work with you on a remote basis. Turing.com is backed by Foundation Capital, Founders Fund, other execs from Google, Facebook, Amazon, and more. And they are on a path to help companies like you find a remote engineering team and not spend years doing it. So if this is interesting to you in any capacity, I would check out Turing.com, T-U-R-I-N-G.com. And when they ask you, how'd you hear about Turing, make sure to tell them you came from the Forward Thinking Founders podcast, specifically tell them Matt Sherman 6, 6 is in the month June, and get that remote engineering team today, not in six months, not in a year, today. And by the way, you get a two-week risk-free trial to give it a shot. So what are you waiting for? Go to Turing.com, T-U-R-I-N-G.com, and I'll see you over there. Now let's get into the show. All right. How's it going, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Forward Thinking Founders. We talk to founders about their companies, their visions of the future, and how the two collide. Today, I'm very excited to be talking to Ryan Sherman, who is the creator, the founder of Impossible Diamond. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Hey, how's it going, Matt? It is going well. Um, it is another surprisingly beautiful day in Phoenix, Arizona. In June, it's like 80 degrees, so I'll take it. How about you? How are you doing? It's e- equally as beautiful here in, in the greater New York City area. Uh, doing well. Can't complain. Awesome. That is good to hear. And, uh, you know, you're working on this company that um, I don't know how many listeners have heard of it, but for those that have not heard of it, can you please kind of go into what you're working on? And how Absolutely. Sure, sure. So, uh, you know, ultimately, in order to understand what's important about us, you have to understand a little bit more about the diamond market in general. So we, as a society, have been consuming greater and greater quantities of diamonds every year, year after year, in and out at this point for nearly a century. So having spent some time in the, uh, in the, in the fine jewelry industry, and then later on going in becoming an entrepreneur, uh, founding multiple businesses, I knew uh, that there was something kind of scratching at the back of my head that I really wanted to address. And it was the environmental impact of diamond production. You know, many consumers are aware of the human rights abuses that are associated with diamond production. Uh, If you've seen Blood Diamond, the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio, you may be familiar with some of those challenges. But what is often fairly understated that most people aren't aware of is the environmental impact. So, uh, Ultimately, what we're doing is very simple. A diamond is made of crystalline carbon, pure crystalline carbon. And we have too much carbon in our atmosphere. And carbon is not good or bad. It is just in the wrong place. So we had this, uh, this notion, what if we could pull carbon out of the atmosphere and transform that into diamonds? The first diamond that would have a positive net impact on the planet and its people. So we started working on a possible diamond I'd say at this point, we're, we're over a year and a half in, um, and we've been predominantly focused on the science that would enable us to do exactly that, and uh, very excited that we are gearing up for production. Uh, we'll be spinning up our production line in August of this summer and uh, launching our consumer brand uh, this fall. 
So how does one do what you're doing? Like, can you kind of describe to me, I, you know, I'm not very knowledgeable on this type of stuff. So apology of it, if it's a basic question, but how do you take, how do you just take CO2 out of the air and then just put it in a diamond? Obviously it's way more, you know, way more complicated than that, but like, can you kind of describe it? How is it even possible? Maybe go into the science a little bit. Sure. And, I, and I'll try and keep it, uh, you know, somewhat high level. First, I mean, I can't give up all of our secrets, one, but uh, on the other hand, I also just uh, don't have to go too far in the weeds for Yeah, even just like high level. Yeah, yeah. Just like yeah. super high level, no secrets, just like get helping me think of a way <laughs> to think about it, you know? <laughs> sure. So, well, the first step is pulling the carbon out of the air. So today we have a number of different direct air capture technologies uh, in development in various stages. Uh, some of them have been commercialized or in the process of being commercialized. Uh, we're using a particular type of uh, atmospheric carbon collection uh, that relies on amine filtration. So basically what you're doing is pumping air through a fan, through a box, and inside of that box is a filter of sorts. That filter combined with the CO2 that's in the atmosphere, but it's, it's, a, it's a weak bond. And you seal that box up, you, you draw a vacuum, make sure that there's nothing in the box and you heat up that filter and it releases, the heat breaks the bonds and releases the CO2 into that chamber. And then you can pump out the CO2 and put it in a bottle essentially. And then what we have is low grade CO2 because there's a bunch of other stuff that ends up getting caught by that filter and gets mixed in and we have to purify that. So it goes through multiple stages of purification. We get rid of all of the other stuff that would otherwise be toxic for growing a diamond. Remember, we just want carbon. So at the end of the day, uh, we have this high purity CO2 that then has to be converted into a, our proprietary precursor, right? So the precursor is what goes into the final reactor to create the diamond. And typically that is uh, going to be one of a few different small chain hydrocarbons. So we have CO2 and we need to turn it into CH whatever. So we have to get rid of the oxygen. Uh, it goes through another stage of uh, modifications in the gas. Uh, basically what happens is in the, in the presence of heat and uh, a special reagent and a couple other tricks up our sleeve, what comes out of the other end is this small chain hydrocarbon. The oxygen is vented to the atmosphere and the carbon and the hydrogen bond, um, <clears throat> excuse me, carbon and the uh, hydrogen bond and form these small chain hydrocarbons. That then goes through additional purification. We bring it up to ultra high purity, 99.9999% pure. And then that can be injected into uh, a diamond reactor. And lab grown diamonds exist. So that, that part of the process is shared there's no real differentiation between us and anyone else that's creating a diamond. It, really, the differentiator is we pull our carbon from the atmosphere. They pull theirs from fossil fuels. Holy smokes. That is incredible. I have to ask you, before you started working on this, what were you doing? Or I guess in, a, in another form of the question is, you, you sounds like you're like uniquely suited to build this. Um, I'm just curious, what's your background? How were you able to understand the science behind all of this to allow you um, to do what you're doing? So uh, where to begin? In a former life, I was an engineer. So I got my degree in mechanical engineering. But uh, for me, a big focus was um, material science. I, I've always just been really intrigued by different materials, material properties. Um, especially with respect to composites and understanding how, you know, they'd be utilized in various industries. I thought I was going to go into the transportation sector. 
coming out of college, but uh, I graduated in the height of the recession and was lucky to have a job at all when, you know, this was a time where a number of my classmates were graduating from a school that had historically extremely high employment rates coming out of their undergraduate program. And that year, I think it was something like 40% of my class had, you know, did not have jobs lined up. And uh, fortunately, I had, you know, bust my hump during summer internships and, and made some good connections. And I had a job in the architectural home hardware space. So essentially, building things like doorknobs and hinge sets and finials and all different types of really interesting decorative pieces for doors in your home. So our clientele were, you know, people like Madonna, Mayor Bloomberg, Jay-Z, people who want really high-end custom stuff that you can't find at your Lowe's, at your Home Depot. And, uh, and it was during that job, um, I was with that company for, I'd say, the first year and a half out of school. Uh, I ended up building out their metal casting foundry. They wanted to do large format metal casting. Now, I was, as I said earlier, always intrigued with different materials. Metallurgy was something that had always piqued my interest. Um, I had no practical experience uh, casting metals until the owners of the company asked me if I had, you know, any interest in, uh, in building that out. So we were, uh, I was tasked with basically building out a foundry, getting it up and running, uh, was able to get that done in a, in a pretty, uh, pretty short time frame. And, you know, then it, my life was all about metallurgy and, and working with various metals, precious metals and non-precious metals. And, and, uh, and that kind of gave me a pretty good foundation for a job in the fine jewelry industry. So I actually transitioned from architectural home hardware to jewelry, worked in the jewelry space and leveraged my understanding of materials to develop products that were, you know, kind of new and interesting and unique. We did things with composites uh, like carbon fiber um, integrating carbon fiber with precious metals to create really interesting uh, jewelry products, uh, predominantly for men. The, the brand that I worked for was called David Yerman. And uh, we developed a whole slew of different collections that featured really novel and interesting materials. Um, fossilized organics, dinosaur bone, um, asteroid, so a meteorite, I should say. Um, we had, uh, we had a pieces of the Gibeon meteorite that broke up over Africa. If, if you look at it, it's a really cool material. If you slice it, and then acid etch it, it reveals uh, what's known as the Wymanstatin pattern. It's a really interesting, almost circuit board looking, uh, naturally occurring pattern inside the, uh, the meteorite. So we, we said, hey, let's put that into jewelry. Turns out it's got high nickel and iron content. And uh, if you leave that out to the elements, it's gonna rust. So how do you make expensive fine jewelry with something that would rust? You can't, unless you employ various coatings, galvanic protection. So we, we were able to leverage material science and chemistry to, you know, bring new materials into the fine jewelry space. So that was going gangbusters. I loved it. I had, you know, great coworkers. It was a great company. Um, ended up finding myself uh, getting poached away by a competitor. Uh, then there was a whole non-compete battle. And uh, I found myself with a, a settlement offer to just take some paid vacation rather than work for a competitor. And I used that as an opportunity to uh, kind of begin my journey into entrepreneurship. I started what would become uh, my first venture back company. We were building smart motorcycle helmet products, um, was, you know, connected IoT solutions for the power sports market that <clears throat> ultimately scaled to a number of different outdoor sports categories. Uh, ran that for six years before selling it to a group of private investors. Um, ended up collaborating with the owners that, that ended up taking over the company to develop uh, Brand Connect, which is a uh, marketing SaaS platform. Um, 
won't get into the weeds on that because that's not what today's call is about. But uh, yeah, I'd say, you know, I have, a, I have a lot of directly relevant experience on the engineering, material science and jewelry side that, that do, you know, kind of make me a good fit for this in terms of, you know, founder market fit. Yeah, I would say founder market fit to the extreme. That That's incredible. I, now I'm just kind of curious, how, how, what are the three things that you spend most of your time on during the day? Obviously, as a founder, you are probably working on a million different things, you know, every different day. But I'm just curious for this type of company, um, where where's the bulk of your time going to, at least in the last, you know, two weeks, you know, because obviously things change really quickly. We'd love to know, you know, how you're spending your time. So where to even begin? Um, and I think part of what I love about being kind of in the driver's seat is that no two days are the same. Uh, and inherently there's, there's a bit of flexibility that comes with my job, whether that's by choice or not sometimes, but uh, you know, I, it, for instance, I'll give you some generic answers. If you're fundraising, that ultimately becomes a full-time job. Um, for us, we've got a, we've got a six person team. You know, the company's only a year and a half old in the beginning, you know, it was my idea, my concept. I had laid out all of the initial, you know, uh, chemistries and, and then pass it over to a team who ran with it while I was very uh, engaged in, in getting my other project brand connect off the ground, uh, which as I said, was that uh, effort with the, uh, the group of investors that acquired my previous startup. Um, so when you're fundraising, you know, you're, you're in that full time. When you are gearing up to get your manufacturing operations off the ground, that can be a, a full time job as well. Fortunately, with a six-person team, you know, I'm able to delegate. And I think that's really what a lot of my time is doing. I, I, in order to best enable my team to go out and execute, I'm kind of taking that 40,000 square foot or 40,000 foot view and, you know, marshalling them together in one direction, um, but allowing my, my group of experts, you know, who each in his or her own right is a domain expert in their area and uh, and letting them do their thing. So um, I'm, I'm kind of the, I think the best way to put it is I'm the maestro with the stick to a certain degree. Um, but we've got, as I said, just really, really talented folks on the team. Um, our, our CTO is a chemical engineer. I'm never going to have the in-depth knowledge of chemical engineering that he's going to have. You know what I mean? Uh, my, my co-founder, Dan, who's our COO, um, behind the scenes, I mean, he's getting much of the day-to-day -day stuff taken care of at an operational level. He and I worked together at David Yerman. He went on to work for Pandora. If you're familiar with Pandora, they make the charm bracelets. They do a lot more than that. It's just kind of what they're known for here in the States. Multi-billion dollar company. He worked his way up the food chain at Pandora, ultimately becoming their you know, the head of their global quality assurance group, working out of their headquarters in Copenhagen. Um, he's now full-time on the, on the team. Um, well, we all are at this point. So, you know, really my, my job and my involvement is is mostly checking with the team, making sure that we're we're you know, keeping the schedule. Um, I'm a glorified manager of sorts, but like like I've always said, my job is not to act like their boss, but for them to to serve them almost like each of them is my boss. It's like the element of I read about called you know servant leadership. Like you're you 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 lead to serve. Um, you know, the people that need to get the stuff done, which is the people that you've hired and, you know, delegated to, which makes sense. If you looked at it, let's say a decade um, or like 15 years, um, you know, in the operation of this, 
what would you what would you say it looks like i guess in other words what's the big vision for what you're working on like what will it look like once you get there you know my my goal in in starting this is to introduce you know kind of a new standard for the way we look at diamonds we we realized when we were very very early into this project that trying to address the environmental concerns related to diamond production by convincing the whole world to stop buying diamonds would be an absolutely futile exercise. So we said, rather than try to stop people from purchasing diamonds, let's just improve how we produce diamonds. And our goal would be to become the new gold standard. There's no reason we should continue to pull diamonds out of the ground today in 2020. Fortunately, by you know, 2040, something like 50% of the world's global mine diamond supply is expected to dry up. Now, there's a lot of misconceptions. There, there are many misconceptions around diamonds. People thinking that, you know, the De Beers company has warehouses and stockpiles still full. And they, they do have some, but not to the degree that they once had. You know, they've been forced to liquidate billions of dollars worth of inventory. Um, there have been a number of different factors that have come into play that have led from them having vast control over the entire industry to today being a minority player in the industry. And it's, it's, it's not just one entrenched player. They're now a handful of large groups, but lab grown is really, um, as, a, as a subsector of the diamond industry has become, I think, the, the fastest growing segment. And in 15 years from now, would like to be the number one player in that space. And of course, to make it happen um, and to be the number one player in this space, you'll need some help, right? You'll, you'll definitely need help from more employees, maybe more investors if, if, if you're going down that route. And you'll, you'll absolutely need help from the forward-thinking founders community. Um, and luckily, I'll make it really easy for you to, to make it ask for help from the community. If you have anything that you need help with or if you have an ask, for, you know, you got all these people listening, ready to help. So I guess what's some, what's something we can help out with? Sure. So a couple things come to mind uh, on the consumer front, um, both Dan and myself and our head of BD, we all have in deep networks in the industry. So getting out there and having conversations with, you know, all of the, the top jewelry brands in the world, we're already kind of making that happen. Um, it's, it's non-obvious partnerships that we're really interested in. You know, looking at companies and brands in other verticals that would be interested in potentially integrating diamonds or diamond material into their products, whether that be apparel, footwear, other accessories. Uh, we're talking to a company that makes fashion breathing masks and uh, about doing a, a completely diamond encrusted breathing mask, uh, you know, for a very high end customer base. And, uh, you know, that's that's something that's always excited me is kind of thinking outside of the box with respect to the other companies that we work with, but we are also a B corporation. So looking for partners on the other side of the equation who we can work with to continue to support global decarbonization efforts and other environmental initiatives. So we're looking for partners on both fronts. So this is kind of an open call. I'd love if anyone hears this and, and they work for a company or they have a friend who works for a company that might want to integrate the first carbon negative guilt-free diamonds into their products or work with us to help make the world a better place. We'd love to talk to you. And um, let's say there are people listening that want to help and want to potentially partner and kind of hear what you're saying. Um, how can they learn more about what you're doing? How can they get in touch? What's your website URL? Do you have an email, Twitter, LinkedIn? I guess, I guess how could people get in touch with you? Yeah, absolutely. So our, our website is just impossiblediamond.com singular, not diamonds, impossiblediamond.com. Uh, 
you can you can drop us a note support at impossible diamond or founders at impossiblediamond.com. I am on Twitter though, Ryan Shearman NYC. If you want to drop me a DM, I'm pretty sure my inbox is open. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast. You're innovating in an area that, you know, obviously is good for the world, but is also, I just think like a great step forward for an industry. And I appreciate you coming on and sharing with what you're working on. So I wish you best of luck moving forward with Impossible Diamond and, um, and keep it up. I'll be, I'll be watching. Wonderful, Matt. Well, thanks for having me. This was a pleasure. All right, thank you for tuning in to that episode of Forward Thinking Founders. I really want to thank our sponsors of today's episode, Turing, for supporting June's episodes of Forward Thinking Founders. If you are a startup founder or a CEO and have any need for technical talent or need an engineering team, specifically a remote engineering team, I highly encourage you to check out Turing.com and see what they can do for you. They have a two-week risk-free trial where you can check out what they have going on. And if you go over to Turing.com, T-U-R-I-N-G.com, tell them Matt Sherman sent you. Tell them Matt Sherman 6, 6 being the month of June. Thanks for listening to today's episode, and I'll see you tomorrow. Peace.